We are continuing in our series through the five solas of the Reformation. So I get to pick up kind of where Rob left off. We're speaking uh, each week on one of the uh, five solas, highlighting those distinctives uh, of the Reformers who 500 years ago, men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, who, who championed a movement to reform and recapture some of those elemental tenets of the gospel. Uh, the, the tenets that had been distorted by the church. Now, the, the five uh, prepositions that we know as the five solas, faith alone, scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and for his glory alone, weren't necessarily something that Luther and Calvin systematically articulated themselves. But the, the five solas rightly capture the very heartbeat uh, of the message of the Protestant Reformation and what fueled the flame and reignited this passionate revival of the gospel. Uh, this morning, we're going to be fleshing out the implications of sola gratia, grace alone, the essential truth that the Reformers champion, that salvation has absolutely nothing to do with you and I and what we've done or not done. That, that no amount of good works or any church tradition or relic or penance or even the act of baptism and communion itself, which is what was being promulgated in, in the medieval church. None of that, the reformers preached, contributes to our justification. Uh, the reformers were unrelenting that our salvation, the very essence of the gospel, is there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, but rather has everything to do with what God has done for you in Christ through faith by his grace alone are we justified. Now, in order for us to really understand the idea of our justification by grace alone, we have to come to grips with it, and we really have to understand why we can't save ourselves. Because frankly, I think we approach God, we approach the Bible as if we, we kind of have it together, and that we bring something to the table. So in order to take a look at like, why we can't save ourselves, we're going to be studying Romans chapter 3, and working our way through verses 9 through 24. And it's, it's a pretty intense passage. Uh, you'll, you'll soon find out. It's not just like peaches and cream here. It's not, not roses and bonbons this morning. Like we're going to go deep and it's intense. So, so just hold on. I would like you, if you could, follow along with me as we read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 24. And may God richly bless the reading of his holy and inspired word this morning, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. How does God declare the guilty just? That's that's really the question, right? How can we, guilty sinners, stand justified before almighty, holy, all-powerful creator God? If, If you're standing before God and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What do you say? How do you answer There really is no more pertinent question for our souls to understand. Tragically, people so often answer with something like, well, I don't don't know if I'm going to get to heaven. I I just kind of hope that God grades on a curve. Or or, or people are banking on, well, I, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. People are, are pushing in all their chips with the hope that, well, the good things I do will outweigh the bad things I've done. Man, I, I don't know about you, but there's, there's got to be a better answer. Right? I, mean, I mean, is that the best that we can come up with? Right? I mean, think about it. Is our best argument for God to declare the guilty just, my good deeds will outweigh my bad? Commenting on this, uh, Todd Wilkin, author and pastor, he poignantly writes, that would be like walking into a courtroom and saying, members of the jury, I'm not asking for mercy or pardon. I want justice. I'm demanding full acquittal. Yes, I committed the, the, the murder of which I'm accused, but I'm not guilty. Members of the jury, you must consider all my good deeds, not merely as mitigating circumstances, but as reasons for exonerating me. The goodness of my other deeds outweighs the crime I committed. My good deeds require a not guilty verdict. If justice is to be done, you must find me innocent. And we, we hear that. We almost, almost laugh because the, the argument is so ridiculous. Right? I mean, any approach to God that depends finally on our balancing of good deeds and bad deeds is even less, even more ridiculous. Yet this is the case that we want to make before God. Romans chapter 3 uh, is described by theologian Donald Barnhouse as the Lord looking down. What he means is Romans 3 is the divine perspective of the human race. It's the Lord looking down from heaven on fallen humanity. And this is what he sees. Their throat is an open grave. 
They, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitters. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. This is what man's sinful heart looks like to God. I mean, it sounds like a, a scene from the night of the living dead. It's not a pretty picture. Now, I know as I, as I look out into the room, you all look wonderful. I mean, you all look good, right? For the most part, always, uh, we, we always look pretty good. We, put, we, we feel put together, right? From, from our perspective, we look nice. But spiritually speaking, underneath everything, while it might look good on the outside, the inside is an absolute mess. See, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 specifically, is one of the most comprehensive passages in the Bible on the doctrine of sin. In fact, what you have in these verses unpacks the thrust of what the entire Bible says about the human race, starting all the way back in Genesis 3 until now. And the Apostle Paul here, his entire point, really throughout the first few chapters in Romans, is that we are all guilty before the holy and righteous judge, and that there is absolutely nothing we can do to fix ourselves, to justify ourselves. Nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. Right? Verse 20 tells us, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We are totally bound and captive to sin. And God, whom all humanity is held accountable, has justly declared you and me guilty. Paul is going to great lengths here to help us understand that, that we are even more flawed and far more sinful than we even think. And there's nothing we can do to fix ourselves. You cannot fix you. Because see, the, the problem is, and we'll get into this, it's not just behavior modification. right? The problem is we need a complete heart transformation and we need to be reconciled to an offended God. We need to be rescued. And our text fleshes all of this out. Uh, and as we make our way through the passage, I want us to understand four things uh, that, that will serve as our outline as we just make our way through a pretty big chunk uh, of verses. The first thing I want us to see is we can't save ourselves because we're totally depraved. Secondly, we can't save ourselves because we only go the wrong direction. Third thing we see is we can't save ourselves because we talk too much. And fourthly, the last thing is we can't save ourselves, so Jesus did. So we're totally depraved, only go the wrong direction. We talk too much. Jesus did what we couldn't. That's going to work as our outline. Let's, let's dive in. It's 1042 right now, and I don't know if singing went longer, but I'm going to, I'm going to be preaching, just if that's okay, for the next 30 minutes straight. We're going to get a little bit around 11.10 is my goal. I just wanted to lay that out there, set the expectations right. All right, first thing, we can't save ourselves. We're totally depraved. Paul begins here making a statement of the totality of our sin. Right? He says over and over again, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The totality of our sin. But, but perhaps what's most startling in these opening verses is what Paul says in, in verse 9. Take a look. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So, so think about what Paul's saying here in, in referring to Jew and Greeks. Paul is, is setting against each other the, the cultural religious and, and the cultural irreligious, right? Those who live morally good lives and, and those who live an immoral life. And, and he's saying no matter where you fall on that spectrum, no matter how you, uh, no matter who you are, we're, we're all alike, Right? Apart from Christ, we are all under sin, condemned. We're all lost and deserve to be rejected by God. Listen, so many people approach Christianity with this idea that there is, is first a list of do's and don'ts that we have to perform and adhere to to be accepted by God. And if we do this and that for God, God will be obligated to do this and that for me. Right? That's, how, that's how every religion in the world looks. Right? If I do this and that for God, God will do this and that for me. And so we approach Christianity thinking, okay, well, what do I have to do and what do I have to stop doing in order for God to accept me? But see, that's, that's not the model of Christianity. That's not the gospel. See, whatever Paul is talking about when he calls Christians to salvation, whatever Jesus is, is talking about when, when he calls us to salvation, can't be calling us to simply stop bad living and start good living. Because what Paul is saying here in verse 9 is that the people who live good lives are, are no better than the people who live bad lives, that spiritually speaking, everyone is on the very same page, lost, guilty. So if you think that what it primarily means to become a Christian is there are, are certain things that I've got to stop doing and there are certain things that I've got to start doing and then God will bless me accordingly and God will look favorably on me, you're wrong. The call of the gospel and what the reformers were so adamant to communicate is that the call of the gospel of how a man stands justified before God is not a call to clean yourself up. Right? It's not first a call to stop living like this and start living like that. Now, now, of course, life changes are extremely important. And by God's grace and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, it happens. Right? A transformed heart will produce a life transformed and transforming. But that is not and cannot be the chief thing. It can't be the central thing. Why? Because people who live what we would call good lives and people who we, live, who would, we would say live bad lives are all alike equally condemned, guilty according to God. And listen, this is, this is the Apostle Paul talking, right? Paul, as a, as a Jew, as a Pharisee, one of the most morally righteous persons to ever live. He was more dedicated to scriptures, to God. He was more upright. And yet Paul says, I am no better than even the most immoral, godless, irreligious person. We are all equally guilty. 
We are all, as, as theologians say, totally depraved. Now, that's not that we are as bad as we could possibly be. Thankfully, God's restraining grace keeps even the worst of us from being utterly depraved. Right? The, the worst people who, who have ever lived could have been worse. I mean, as I understand it, Adolf Hitler actually liked his mom. So even the, the worst people could have even been worse. But what it does mean is that the, the world is not filled with good people and bad people. The world is filled with equally lost people. And all people need salvation. Right? That's why we can't just modify our behavior and, and think that that will be acceptable to God. Right? Because sin reaches every aspect of our personhood. Physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, motivationally, socially. We've been damaged by sin. It's inescapable and comprehensive. We're all sinners. It reaches every aspect of what makes us us. Right? There's no part of us that is left untouched by sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins with no spiritual capacity to incline ourselves to God. Right? We, we don't come into this world spiritually neutral. We come into this world spiritually dead. And what that means is we need a lot more than to just muster up the spiritual strength to, to reach out of our hospital bed and take a little medicine from God. We need to be raised from death to life. Total depravity means we're, we're totally unable to go to God. That, that we will not because we cannot and we cannot because we're dead. We desperately, desperately need a rescuer. We, we can't save ourselves because we're totally depraved. Secondly, what we see here is, is we can't save ourselves because we only go the wrong direction. We already hinted to it, but verses 11, 12, no one seeks God, no one does good. Everyone turns aside. Now, that needs some, some explanation because it, it does seem that, that people are seeking God. Right? I mean, people pray. They, they, they come to church trying to figure it out, right? They're, they're trying to find God. And, and, and some people, it seems, are, are doing good in the world, right? I mean, what about all of the, the hurricane relief efforts by people all over the globe? What about raising money for the tragedy in Vegas? Those are good things, but Paul's telling us here that, that no one does good, that no one seeks God. See, Paul's probing here cuts deeper into the heart uh, of human evil. See, the question is not whether good things are done, right? Like self-sacrificing people who go to the front lines of disaster relief. That's a good thing. But the heart of evil, according to the storyline of the Bible going all the way back to Genesis, is the broken relationship with God, the separation from God caused by sin. See, sin is turning away from God. It's trying to be your own God, putting yourself in his place, thinking that your ways are better than his. And you look at these words that Paul uses, seeking, doing, turning, 
They're, they're directional words. And, and, and what it's talking about is trajectory. It's talking about direction, your aim. See, sin makes you not go towards God, even in the good things you do. It makes you want to get away. Sin makes you want to get out from under his gaze, from under his authority, from under his control. You want to control it. And see, people try to control uh, their lives, spiritually speaking, in one of two ways. One is to be a law to yourself, right? To live whatever way you want, do whatever you want, trying to control it, obviously not seeking God. Then there's the other way that's a little bit more difficult to, to identify, right? The other way is to, to try to be really good, Go to church. Uh, try to obey the Bible. Do everything you possibly can, but with the motivation that you put God in your debt and that he has to bless you because you've been so good. See, you're trying to control it. Right? In which case, you're seeking things from God, but you're not really seeking God. Notice that the text doesn't say no one seeks blessings from God. Of course they do. That, 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 that no one seeks uh, God answering prayers, right? Of course they do. But Paul is saying no one seeks God for God, right? Without the probing work of the Holy Spirit, opening the eyes of our heart, no one seeks God for God. They may be seeking things from God. See, we will seek God. We'll, we'll seek others. We'll do good as long as it benefits you and makes you feel good about yourself. And, and you can be doing all the right things and still be radically self-centered, still be uh, radically going the wrong direction, doing them for yourself. See, the, that's the aim of our sinful heart. And so we can't save ourselves because we're only always going the wrong direction. We need a rescuer. And thirdly, we can't save ourselves because we just talk too much. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I like the NIV translation. It reads, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now, remember, as Paul is saying this, he's, he's coming to, this, to the end of his exposition on why we need a rescuer, why we need salvation. Because starting in verse 21, and really the rest of chapter 3, Paul jumps into, but now a righteousness apart from the law has come. And we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So, so Paul is leading us there, but is here bringing us to this point in verse 19 saying, listen, you will never be able to receive Christ's salvation unless your mouth is silenced. You have to stop talking spiritually. Now, you say, well, what does that mean? To have your mouth silenced means no excuses, means no plan B. Brings, it means you bring nothing to the table. If you say, oh, I know I did wrong, God. I'm not perfect, but I know I can do better next time. I know I can turn it around, God. Give me another chance. 
Paul's saying, stop talking. Silence. Right? As long as you're saying, I know I can do it, I know I can do Paul's saying, you haven't silenced. You haven't shut your mouth. You aren't ready for salvation. Right? You're still trying to rescue yourself. You don't realize how desperately you need the grace of God in your life, how desperately you need to be rescued. See, here's the point. You can't receive the rescue from your sins unless you realize that you cannot fix yourself. And you realize that that trying to fix yourself on your own actually makes you worse. Right? Because if you think about it, every effort to somehow try to get it together on your own strength is just another effort in self-salvation, just another effort in self-justification, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, in telling God, I've got this on my own. And listen, because I know where some of you will go with this. this. This condition of spiritually shutting yourself up, it does not mean to beat yourself up. Oh, I've done so much wrong. I'm, I'm such a failure. God will no, never love me. Paul's saying, stop. Silence. You're, you're still centered on yourself. Right? You have to come to an end of yourself. The only way to get pulled out of the radical self-centeredness of sin is that you have to get to the end of yourself. See, Tim Keller, in his book, The Counterfeit Gods, puts it like this. If you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. And see, the problem is, most people don't have it. So Paul says here, stop talking. Silence. Right? No, no words to you I bring. Only to the cross of Christ I cling. There's nothing that you can do to fix you. Christ can. And he clothes you in his righteousness. See, so, so we're, we're totally depraved. We're only going the wrong direction and we talk too much. We don't and can't see God. So salvation then is God seeking us. Which brings us to our last point, that we can't save ourselves, so Jesus did. Verse 21, but now. I want you to circle those two words in your Bible. Because everything is, is contingent on that transition. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so, so, so track, track with the development here. What we've seen so far is that there's this major problem Right, that every single one of us with, with absolutely no partiality have committed sins against the almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful creator God who created all things for his glory. And, and you and I have sinned and we've fallen short of that glory. 
right? Every one of us at one time or another or actually currently believe that your way is better than God's. Right? We, we fail to acknowledge him and give glory for the gifts that he's given us. We've belittled his name. We've belittled his glory. We don't seek him. We turn away from him. We've separated ourselves from him. We try to control and hold him in our debt, and we question his rule and authority. So we've belittled God, and God being just, right, and holy is not going to allow the belittlement of his name. We stand guilty. And as the just judge of all things, he cannot simply overlook our sin. Right? Scripture tells us he by no means will clear the guilty. And elsewhere in Scripture, it tells us that the penalty of sin is death. Because what else is there but death if you separate yourself from the very giver and sustainer of life? So eternally separated from him and all that is good. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Nothing we can do on our own to make ourselves acceptable to God. Right? And if we stopped right there, man, our story would be a sad, sad story. But it doesn't stop, right? Verse 21, but now. See, God, not being able to spare wrath, sends Jesus Christ in the flesh to live the righteous life that we couldn't live and then die the death that we deserve to die going to the cross. And and on the cross, God the Father, knowing all about me, took all of my sins and put them on Jesus and punished him in my place so that Jesus took the wrath of God, paying the price, taking the penalty that I deserve dying on the cross for my sins. But see, on the third day, he he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, and by grace alone, as a free gift, offers the forgiveness of sin and eternal life with himself to all who trust and believe. This is the gospel. That you and I have right standing with God, not by our efforts, not by our works, not by our skill, not by whether we do this or don't do that, justified before God by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me close by telling one story. Uh, In the Old Testament, God goes to the prophet Hosea. He says to Hosea, I want you to marry this woman, Gomer. So Hosea obeys and says, listen, I'm a prophet. You're God. I'll listen to you. I'll marry her. And so he does. But it's not long into their marriage that Hosea realizes that Gomer has, has not been faithful to him. Right? There's been, there's been sexual unfaithfulness. And actually, as she begins to have children, he realizes that they aren't his children. Uh, In fact, he names one of the kids a name that literally means not mine. It's a tough place to be. Uh, Her unfaithfulness and her waywardness gets worse and worse, and she finally just leaves him and the kids, goes off to another man, and then she goes off to another man, and then she goes off to another man. And finally, that man, because she's so faithless and completely untrustworthy and breaks every promise, he sells her into slavery. And Hosea turns to God 
basically asks, remind me why you asked me to marry her? And God says something like, so you'll know something of my relationship to you. And God says to Hosea, now I want you to to go where she's being sold into slavery and I want you to purchase her freedom and take her back. And then you'll know something of my unfailing, unrelenting, loving pursuit of my children. And so Hosea does. Goes to the slave market and, and Gomer, absolutely at the end of herself, right, nothing to give, probably naked. And from what we can tell, she's being bid on. And she's standing there. And suddenly, she hears her husband's voice bidding for her. And he pays the price, purchasing her freedom. And he walks up to her. He takes his cloak off, wraps it around her, covers her nakedness, and says, now you will come home and be my wife. And see, that is meant to give us a glimpse of what God has done for you. See, our hope, what we bank on, what we we can cash all of our chips in for, is not in anything we can do, but in what God has done as a gift by his grace alone in Christ. To lovingly pay the price of our redemption, wrapping his cloak of righteousness to cover our nakedness so that God could declare you and me justified.